Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fire pit at the heart of the forest. My name is Owen Staten, and we are here at the time between times. It's that time of day when the veil between our world and the fairy world is wafer thin. So thin that for a few moments, in just a few moments, we can reach into their realm, and they can reach into ours. All around us I can see shadows and shadows, shadows. The tell with Teg, ghosts of the past, the present, and maybe the future. And of course, lights in the sky. But tonight I am not alone. At the fire pit here, in the flickering flames, I have a friend with me tonight. I am so glad that Icy Sedgwick has decided to join me. Folklorist, author, presenter, extraordinaire. Croiso, I see. Welcome to the fire pit. Well, hello there. It's good to see you. I was so, I was so grateful uh, a few months ago to uh, have the chance to appear with yourself on on your show, and um, I've been a fan and I've been a listener for a long time, and I really enjoy your podcast. You're someone with a lot of knowledge. You deal with a lot of different subjects. You deal with different aspects of folklore from all over the country. How on earth did you get into folklore in the first place? Have you got a story that brought you here, really, to the fire pit of the heart of the forest? As with most things, it was kind of an accident. I don't ever really set out to do anything. It's just something comes along as an opportunity, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. That sounds like it'll be fun. And then I end up doing things. I mean, that's what led me to, to start a PhD of all things. So it's like, it sounded like a good idea at the time. And it was, oh God, we're going back to about, must be about 1990, 1991 maybe. And I was at a stately home in the Northeast. We've got so many, I forget which one it was. And um, I happened to come across this little um, booklet. It's about A5. It's just stapled. It's not fancy bound, anything like that. Called uh, Actually, the first one I got was More Ghosts and Legends of Northumbria. So I got the sequel first and found it in a gift shop. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. Um, The ghosts bit caught my eye because I've been fascinated by ghosts for literally as long as I can remember. And I was like, oh, can I have this? And it was pound fifty, which is an absolute bargain as far as I'm concerned. And... I basically just like flew through it, absolutely loved it, and then went to another castle, um, and I bought the the first one, and then just started collecting these stories of folk tales and legends, and you can't move in the northeast without falling over some kind of story, and I think it was one of those things where I just had an interest in them for so long because I was fascinated by how you could go to these places and have a look round, and you know you could go to Bambra, for example, and hear the legends of sort of the pink lady, or you could go to Seton Delver Hall and there was the white lady. And, you know, they just kind of, for me, made places which could potentially for a kid in their, like, 
you know, pre-teen, early teen years potentially be a little bit boring, suddenly having all of these stories attached to them made them much more interesting. And I think it just kind of went from there and I was sort of hooked on them ever since. Wow, so you bought the more Ghosts book first. That's like watching Back to the Future 2 first, really, wasn't it? Did yeah. you manage to to pick up on the other one? <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar to myself, I see. I, um, I found a book, I was on a school trip many years ago, and I found a book called Rumours and Oddities from North Wales. I was on a rare trip north uh, into North Wales, and I came across that, and it awoke, it sort of switched the light on in me, which I which never went out really. And uh, it seems like it, it's similar to yourself. I first came across you, I think, um, back in the old Folklore Thursday days. I can remember um, every Thursday I would try and post something uh, as regards to folklore. And I think you did the same. You know, I could often see your tweets coming up. I could see a lot of things that you wrote. Can you remember the point where you decided to take your interest for folklore almost into the public domain. You know, you started doing um, the podcasts, you started doing um, uh, lots of other things as well. Was there a point where that happened and how did that come sort of come about? Annoyingly, again, all by accident. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> honestly, I'd be the world's worst life coach just yet. Yeah, give it a go, see what might happen, never mind planning things. Um, yeah. Basically, the, the, the blogging came about because a lot of the fiction I was writing had some kind of link to folklore or, and I think a lot of fantasy is sort of folklore adjacent anyway. And obviously a lot of the Gothic stuff I was writing again, had, had like a folklore bent to it. And I remember, I think the very first thing I ever wrote, I'm pretty sure it was a really basic one on the vampire rabbit and the really cool grotesque in Newcastle who like everybody who goes to Newcastle now goes to see him, haven't seen him um on instagram and so on so i kind of feel a bit like he's pr agent now and it uh, and i remember posting it and then sharing the link and then it gave me an excuse to start looking for things to blog about and over time i sort of kind of almost forgot doing the fiction stuff to the, the same degree and got more and more interested in doing a lot of the folklore stuff so i'd start writing about things like the hand of glory or I would write about um, plants in particular because I've loved plants for my whole life and obviously plant folklore is uh, is really interesting. And of course, I think the thing that really ignited my interest there was a visit to the Poison Garden at um, the Annick Garden um, and just sort of seeing all these, these plants that I'd heard all these stories about and so on. And some of them look really unremarkable in person and you're just like, you should be far surer considering what you do. And, and then eventually it got a early 2019 and I was reading a marketing book and the woman was like if you've spent x amount of time blogging you should then think about adding another channel so like you know do audio if you're already doing audio do video so I thought well oh that'll be good for accessibility because then if somebody um you know for whatever reason can't read the blog post they can listen to it instead so I started doing audio versions of the blog posts and then putting them up and for a laugh, I thought, oh, I wonder what will happen if I submit like the RSS feed to Apple. And then I got like an email like, oh, your podcast is published. And I was like, oh, my God, oops, I've just started a podcast. And then I've kind of done it ever since. And I know that makes me sound really ditzy, but it was just it wasn't planned. It was more just I thought, well, I'll make the RSS feed to make the posts see like the things easier to find. And it ended up where people who hadn't read the blog before were then like, oh, well, I can listen to it while I'm doing something else. So like people who I didn't think would ever be that interested, who never read the blog, 
then tell me, oh yeah, I was listening to your podcast the other day. So I always find it quite funny that that was sort of the thing that kind of brought what I was doing to more people. Um, and then from there, it's just gone on, you know, so people will get in touch and be, oh, do you want to be on this radio show? You know, do you want to write this book and so on? So it, it's all just kind of gone off the back of, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But you always, and now please take this the right way because it, it's really meant in the right way. You always sound so assured, so knowledgeable, so calm, so um, as if the road you're taking your listener down is a road that you know extremely well. And uh, that to me, because I always associate with your podcast with I walk my dog a lot in the forest, which is just behind my house. And um, when I'm in there, your voice has often been a companion for me when I'm sort of walking around. Did you find that your audience grew quickly? Did you have an audience straight away? Um, was it something that took a while to get going or was it something that was really pleasing straight away that people were brought into your podcast? Um, I think, I think obviously the people who were already reading the blog then sort of were like, oh, this is actually so much easier. And because the podcast episodes, you kind of got a little bit of slightly dry commentary on the side because I soon discovered that actually rather than just reading the blog post, actually kind of just chatting about the, the topic. So I still obviously read the post to an extent, but there's like little asides and stuff. And I know a couple of people have passed comments in the past. That it always feels a bit like we're sort of sitting down for a cuppa and having a chat about something weird that I found out, which I absolutely 100% do in person as well. So I kind of, I sort of fell into that thing of almost wanting it to feel a bit like I was just sitting down going, oh my God, I found this amazing thing. And then like telling people what I'd found. And I sort of, but I wanted to still have like that academic side as well. So obviously if anyone's ever interested in research sources and things, they're all on the blog post that goes with the, the podcast episode. But as someone who's in academia anyway, I've got such a problem with um, academia being like un unreachable for ordinary people so I always wanted to kind of think well how can I bridge that gap between this topic and an ordinary listener base and I think really that's kind of resonated with people at home because it has the growth of the podcast actually been relatively steady and I have certain months where there's like loads of listeners because people have obviously liked that particular theme and ghosts in particular do quite well the witch groups uh, episodes do really well whenever I do specific locations. So for some reason, um, my Wales episodes always do really well, which is really cool. And I think that over time, it's kind of built a little bit more slowly, but then I still get messages off lovely people on Instagram being like, oh, I've just discovered your podcast. I've gone back to the beginning and I'm like, you've got five years worth of content. Like you've got quite a lot to get through. Uh, where are you up to? And um, so I think it, it has been... I wouldn't say like an exponential thing and it's kind of been much more steady and I think in a way I prefer that because then I, I, I sort of feel like I'm still sitting down and I'm still chatting to people about these weird things that I've been looking up online and I've probably got a really odd search history now. I quite like the fact that it still sort of feels like, you know, I'm talking to whoever is listening rather than, you know, addressing the masses because that would just be massively arrogant. Have you got, I know it's a difficult subject and one I'd find hard to answer, 
Well, have you got a favourite topic you've covered? Have you got a favourite story, a favourite something that you've gone into? Perhaps one you didn't know about before, but has really sort of drawn you in? Or is there one that's quite affected you or one that made you really think about things? It, you know, is there a particular one that stands out is what I'm asking? I, I just thought there's actually two. And one of them is a very recent one. And that was the one about 50 Barclay Square, which at one point was considered the most haunted house in London. And... I I knew Barclay Square from the TV series about it, sort of about, about like the maids and whatnot of Barclay Square, and I actually had never run across the legend of it. So it was really fascinating doing that one because it meant rather than just because the problem that you sometimes have is like you look at books and you look at articles, and you're like, "Ah, this is all sound," but you're all just saying the same thing. So I was like, "Well, I'm going to go and have a look at the original newspapers from the time then and see what they say." And then you start piecing those together and actually find a slightly different narrative from what everybody else has been saying. So that one was really quite difficult to get the timeline right on it, but it was much more useful going to the original sources. But then the other one that I think anyone who's ever listened to Fabulous Folklore will know that this is like a weird pet topic of mine, but Spring Heel Jack. I love Spring Heel Jack. I know you're not supposed to. But the reason why I love him is because of the fact that all the stuff people believe about him more or less came from the Penny Dreadful rather than the actual legend. And I love the fact that you've got this figure who, whatever you think you know about him, is probably wrong. And uh, and he's just, I think, because again, I'd bought into the idea of this person actually having springs in their shoes. I mean, that would shut your ankles, you know. So, like, on a practical level, it doesn't work. But when I then went off and looked into it, I was like, oh, man. I really wanted that to be true. And then you're like, but actually, it's kind of cool because this is the thing with folklore. You can't have an either or mindset. It only works with the both and. And I've had this before where I've like debunked something or I've been like, actually, no, we can't say that the ancient Celts did that because we've got no evidence of that. And people get really shirty with us. And I'm like, however, you get to both have the belief of the thing that you knew originally, which you now know is wrong, but you still get to have the belief that people have thought that. And you kind of have to have like a both and of, well, I did think this, but now I think that. But I can still have the two things in my head at the same time. And I think the Spring Heel Jack is very much one of those where I can think all this stuff about him's nonsense. But at the same time, it's really cool that all that nonsense still exists. And you just kind of have to find that balance between the two. That's a really good answer, actually. And you're someone who comes across as quite sceptical, but with a, a bit of a, a leaning towards the, the story, you know, as well, and, and things like that. And have you had any, um, I know it's the, the question everyone in this genre sort of dreads, but have you had any sort of spooky experiences yourself or something that you cannot explain or something that you think, hang on, that was a bit odd? I've had loads of them, to the extent that I'll sometimes be listening to something like Uncanny and go like, you call that weird. <laughs> and, uh, but I think the problem that I've got is because a lot of the weird things I've had like they go right back to when I was a child and when you have enough just bizarre things happen and they're quite low level so they're not anything huge but then you start thinking but if you add them all together individually they mean very little but cumulatively they're a bit more impressive but then you do sort of think like I I then don't consider these things to be unusual because enough of them happen so, you know, I mean, I've had sort of things like even just the other day I got out of the shower and again, mystery scratches on my shoulders that I know I didn't do. And one of them was like a perfect V on my shoulder. And I was like, I can't even get my hand in any kind of angle to be able to scratch myself 
with a perfect V. Like that's really bizarre. And like things like that happen or um there's been times when I've gone places and like just the atmosphere, you've been able to cut it with a knife, you know, and things like that. And obviously some of them you go, that's probably got a realistic explanation to it, don't be silly. But then other times you're like, well, maybe it does have a realistic explanation, but the very fact that I'm thinking it might not is also still really cool. So it's it's difficult to really point to any one thing and say, yes, this is a really bizarre story that I can tell people because you kind of sit there going, well, which one do I start with? Because all of them sound a bit like underwhelming on their own. But like I say, when you then take it together, you kind of go, yeah, no, the world isn't quite as clear cut as we might like it to be. Yeah, so if I took you all the way back to the seven-year-old ICU, found that book on that day trip, um, and that inter- was there an interesting ghost and the strangeness before then? I know it would have been very young, but uh, I suppose even as a very small child, you had an interest in this sort of area of work as well. Yeah, to the extent I used to read a lot of like fiction ghost stories, and there was one book my mother had to take off us because of the fact that it really, really, really bothered us, and I couldn't tell you what it was called. Because it was like a collection of short stories and I just remember the book was purple and it had like a massive like photo of a skull on the front. And it was aimed at children, um, but if you've got a particularly imaginative child, you might not want to give them a book like that. And I just remember there was a story to do with someone seeing like a reflection in like an oven door or something. And I don't know why, but that really put the wind up me, which was silly because we didn't have an oven door like that at the time. But... Yeah, my mum would take the book office and be like, no more ghost stories for you. And um, But yeah, for some reason, I was totally okay with Tales of the Fairies and things like that. And obviously, Northumbrian fairies, like, you do not mess with. They're not, um, like, Twee or, like, Tinkerbell or anything like that. You you, you leave them over there and, and, and you try and stay over here. They never bothered us. And like, we've got various other monsters and, obviously, black dogs and, and all this kind of thing. None of that ever bothered us. But obviously, some of the ghost ones did. Um. But then at the same time, I always really wanted to see one. So I've always kind of been torn between that, like, oh, it'd be amazing to see, like, a proper full-body apparition. And then being like, how would I even, like, would I, A, would I notice? Because there's a very good chance that I wouldn't. And B, like, how would I actually react? I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so I have had that interest since I was a child and, 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 and before that. And I don't even know where that came from. I just know it's always been there. That's mad, isn't it? And... You're a prolific writer. You do a lot with the blog, the books, you know, even the writing for the um, the podcast as well. But your canon of literature that you put out doesn't always, you know, include the high strange. You, you've written a lot of Western stories as well and, and things like that in the past. And, yeah. you know, how, well, there, there's a real difference in the interest there. How did that come about? Again, it was an accident. <laughs> the, I'd been putting these stories out, these Friday Flash stories, so it's like stories that were less than a thousand words. And before Folklore Thursday, that was the thing that I used to churn out every week. There was a new Flash story. And I guess quite a few of them fell under what you could call pulp. And uh, there was a publisher based in Brighton who just started um, like a, a, a line dedicated to, to pulp fiction. And he was like, oh, I'd really like you to write something for this particular line. Um, these are the four genres so it was like sci-fi, western, rockabilly, and a fourth one that I can never remember. And he's like, we need like a tale of retribution or revenge or whatever. And my brain straight away, because of the, the strange names that you sometimes get for towns in the Old West, I thought, ooh, I'll make retribution the town. 
and then it sort of all came from there so I, I decided I would do a western because in the back of my head I'd always wanted to do like a series of books like the Hellblazer comics with John Constantine but just set in the old west instead and I thought oh this could be like a good stepping stone um, towards that because I'd always been interested in the old west I'd done it at school though well, I'd done the whitewashed version of it rather at school and so of course I just thought oh well I'll do that then so because it was only a novella it was only 40,000 words and that's how Guns Retribution was born and then I ended up doing the follow-up which is a weird western because that one's got zombies in it and that one people really didn't take to so I think that it was one of those things where people who like weird westerns liked it, but people who preferred traditional westerns really didn't. So I was just kind of like, well, no more writing that for me then. Um, and then by that point, I'd sort of gotten distracted by gothic horror, which is far easier for me anyway, because it's what I'm kind of steeped in. So, um, But yeah, so it does look a little bit weird to go from like these two westerns to all these like short stories and dark fantasy and stories about mummies and things. It does seem a little bit odd. No, it doesn't, because... I'm very similar because I love westerns as well, and um, I'm I've been really really lucky in, in my uh, in my life. I've been I've been to the Alamo twice, and um, I've actually told stories in the Alamo. And um, I love as a child growing up, there always used to be westerns on a Sunday afternoon, westerns on in the morning. I can remember I was a big fan of Champion, the Wonder Horse, and the Lone Ranger. Um, one of my favourite films is still The Searchers, and um, you know I love those old western sort of. Um, uh, films. I always find that those Western stories, it, it's a mythology of its own, isn't it? You were looking at maybe 20 years of history there that are, are plumped into these sort of myths that becomes the Old West. So I find it no surprise at all that someone like you would be attracted to that because it is its own thing, do you know? But um, for myself, it's always interesting to come across someone else with a similar interest. Do, do you like sort of Western films and that when you were growing up? Or is that something you were into? Um, I'm laughing because of the fact that like my my first exposure to a Western was probably Back to the Future 3. Um, <laughs> and I absolutely love that one. That's my favourite of the trilogy. But like obviously then after that, like I mean, my favourite Western is Tombstone. Nobody calls me Mad Dog. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mad Dog. He's amazing. But like, I love Tombstone. Um, and I remember going to see 310 to Yuma when they did the remake and stuff like that. So, I mean, I would love to see Bodie, the ghost town in California and stuff. So I think I've... I've always been interested in it from like just the sheer epic scale of it um, and things like that. And I think that it's, I mean, I I discovered sort of shortly after I did Guns that um, my granddad, my mum's um, dad used to love reading Westerns and he like one, an author, was it Zane Grey, I think. Um, so I hadn't really read many, but I did go out and I read like so many books about American history. So, you know, about all the various like battles and things and, I did so much research because I thought if anyone criticises guns, it's not going to be because it's historically inaccurate. If you hate the plot or you don't like the characters, that's fine. There's only one thing in it which I know is inaccurate, but it couldn't be helped. Um, and it's a it's a staple in films, though, so I kind of felt like I could get away with it. But um, other than that, I thought like the history side of it, like the location of the town, the the, the time that like the railroad came through, all that kind of thing. That's all based on like actual fact. So I thought at least it's underpinned by something. So I could point to retribution on a map if somebody asked. Um, just because of the fact that I wanted at least there to be like a sense of a real world to it, even though it's quite clearly your sort of Saturday matinee sort of 
content. It's not. I mean, it's, it's hardly Shakespeare. You know what I mean. But I'm. I'm the kind of person. Like obviously, my academic specialism is horror films, so I'm clearly not sort of sitting there going, "Oh, I will only watch high cinema." Or anything like that. I'm clearly like, just give us an entertaining film, man. That's all I'm looking yeah. for. And that will lead me on nicely to your sort of uh, the writing and stories. You obviously love gothic horror. You love um, that type of thing. Is there, is there a was there a time in your life when you could remember sort of horror films coming into your into your life in in any way? And then, and what were your favourites really? Well, what was really funny is I was always really bothered that. Oh, well, actually, I say I was. My mum was always really bothered, having had the incident of having to take the book off it. She was always really worried about me watching horror films, thinking that I might get sort of like really bothered by them or whatever. So if, whenever her and my dad would get like a film out from the video shop, as it was then, you had it for two nights. So they would watch it on the first night. And if she felt it wasn't going to bother us too much, then would sort of would get to watch it on the second night. And I never really watched a lot of like, I guess, some classic horror and stuff like that. So I, I just hadn't really seen that much horror. And it took us until the third year of my degree so I would have been like 20 at this point. And I did a module uh, with the late, great Peter Hutchings about the horror film. And um, and I suddenly got to watch all these films. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm totally not bothered by these. How strange. So like a book can absolutely get under my skin. But a film sort of can't. And I think part of it is because the bit of film studies I've fallen into has been analysing like cinematography and sound design and set design. So like I'll be sitting watching a film being like, the plot's nonsense, but my God, that's a beautiful use of lighting. And I think, so because of that, I think I've got a slightly different perspective on a lot. I mean, I've seen a lot of dross, I really have. But I think um, for a film to actually bother me, if that makes sense, it's, it's probably not going to happen. Um, I can't really think of any, any Western horror films anyway that have put, like, well, ghost-related ones that have particularly bothered us. Um, but I just watch them because I enjoy them. You know, I can certainly think they're actually well written. They might be well acted. Um, you know, the the technical aspects can be good. So I'm 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 not I've I've never claimed to like high art. But I think if I was going to pick a favorite, oh, it would have to be the Haunting from 1963. Wow, that's a classic there, though, isn't it? I mean, you've really it's gone really you've gone to town with that. Classic really. for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> So if I was to say to you, I'd like you to write, um, I'm going to give you a million pounds. Uh, not that that would ever happen, but I, I give you a million pounds and I want you to write one story, one story alone. In what genre would it be, I see? Oh, God, that's hard. Because I absolutely categorically cannot stay within one genre. It's been proven. The minute I try, it kind of wanders off into something else. I suppose it would probably be... I guess it would probably be uh, probably gothic, um, which is not really a genre. It's more of a mood, but something along that lines. But even then, it's like I did one where I, was, I wanted to write like a haunted house story and it ended up being like what you would get if you cross Blade Runner with the woman in black. Like, who does that? You know what I mean? So it's like, I think, so while I say gothic horror, that's such a broad thing that I'd have plenty of time to kind of play with it within that. No, that's great. And um, Fabulous Folklore, you've been running it for just over five years. You said it's it's going really well. Can you see any developments in that in the future? Is there anything you'd want to cover? Is there anywhere you're going to go with it? Are any more plans for it? One of the things I really do want to do um, when I finally finish my PhD is actually go out more. Because um, obviously all the bits in Northumbria, it's like, well, that's just on my doorstep. 
but I'd like to actually physically go to different places and do more folklore stuff. So the big one on me to do list this year, I really like. I can't believe I've never been to Ireland yet, and me and I've got ancestors on my dad's side. Um, they're only a couple of generations back from Cork, and people keep asking for more Irish folklore, and I'm just like, I really do need to just go. Um, and so I'd I'd really love to actually go and see places and actually do stuff from the location rather than it just always being a little bit more dry and I know like when I've done um, stories in the past where it's been like say ghost stories of like Barcelona or Amsterdam or like places I've been to those ones have gone down really well so I kind of feel like I want to go out in the field a little bit more. Great stuff you're always a lover of story just like myself and that leads us really nicely actually Um, everyone who joins me at the fire pit at the heart of the forest I ask them to tell a tale um, or ask them to give me a tale to tell if you like and I often ask for it to be a tale that means something to them or something that, um, uh, you know, has affected them at some point in their life or or just something they really like. What would yours be? I mean, that's a hard one, but I think the one that always sticks in my head is the tale of the Lady Worm of Spindlestone Hoof, which is actually set in Barnborough Castle, which loads of people will have seen if they've seen any of the film versions of Macbeth and Ellie always filmed at Barnborough. And it's got a dragon in it. And that's one thing that you get with the folklore from our part of the world. There's a lot of dragons. Well, there's the two main ones, the Laidly Worm and the Lambton Worm. And I always preferred the Laidly Worm because it's got like evil witches, dragons, like heroic brothers and stuff like that. And I think what I like about it is it's it sort of feels quite epic. And I know it, it, it's also related to like the stories that you get in other parts of the British Isles and they've just changed the name. So it's obviously more of a story type than a specific thing. But because it's then been tied into the landscape through certain features, um, I just always liked the way that whenever you went to Barnborough, you'd be kind of like, oh yeah, this is where the Lady Worm was. And it just always kind of stuck with us. And again, uh, I can't stress this enough, dragons. So... <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, I'll um, I'll tell that tale for us in a moment. Um, for the people listening, um, listening to us, so we, this chat we've had, where can they find you, Icy, and what uh, um, and what can they expect to hear from you if they do find you? Um, I'm basically everywhere. I'm really annoying like that. I'm on all the platforms as Icy Sedgwick, um, spelled S E D G W I C K. People will insist on putting an extra E in, uh, or occasionally other letters, and I suppose. The easiest way to think about what the kind of stuff that I like to share is it's folklore, but within a sense of context. So how does the folklore in isolation, like how does it fit with other things that may have been going on in the time, be that popular culture or just um, how people just were. So it's kind of a little bit of, I guess, social history as well. And you'll get an awful lot of plants and trees as well, because I do love me nature based stuff. No, that's great. And to have you here at the fire pit has been a real honour for me. I see. I really want to thank you for joining me. Um, there have been many times over the last couple of years where um, your podcast has always been a place I can turn for something that's interesting, informative and really entertaining. And, um, you know, and there's been times, especially in the last couple of years, where we've all sort of needed that. And uh, I just want to thank you for that. That's been uh, it's been a go to for me for a little while. So thank you very much. And um that's no problem. Do you just sit back and relax and I'll tell your story for everyone listening. Thank you, I see. A 
And here we are, my friends, still at the time between times. The time, it's neither night nor day, but the sun has gone and the sky is grey. And here I will tell you the tale requested by Icy, one of her favourites from the book she found long ago. The Laidley Worm of Spindleston Hoof. Long ago and far away in the north of England, a place that is always a jumper colder than down here in Wales, there stood a broken tooth of a castle called Banborough, and it was there the two siblings were born, Marcus and Margaret, two fair-headed, fine children who grew up as the children of the king and the queen. They were so happy every day they played in the courtyard on the walls, in the gatehouse of the great castle of Banborough, a smile on their face and the sun in the skies. But fate, as it often does, intervened one dark, stormy winter's night and their mother, the Queen, died, leaving their father utterly heartbroken. Everything changed in that moment. The skies grew dark, the rain started to fall, the people went to their houses. The years passed, and Marcus decided he could take no more. So when he was old enough to ride a horse, wear armour and carry a blade, he made his way south to join a crusade saying goodbye to Margaret in the gatehouse with a kiss. He vanished. Soon afterwards, the king himself went to London, leaving Margaret in the castle with the servants and the folk from the village. When a message arrived that the king had met a new lady, that the king had fallen in love, and the king was to return in three days, bringing the new queen with him. The castle sprang into action. Bunting and banners were hung with the shields on the wall of the great hall. A party was to be arranged, and soon at the time between times they were seen crossing the moors in front of the castle, coming home. All the people gathered, and a great dance occurred. Margaret approached her new stepmother, who was as beautiful as the darkest night. Her hair was as black as pitch, her dress as dark as the deepest cave. Her eyes were like the moon on a winter's night, and she spoke in a voice as old as the mountains and as capricious as the sea. You may dance, my princess, but I will sit upon the throne. Go, go and do what must be done. Margaret danced, the music played, there was much merriment. But on the stroke of midnight, those who were watching the new queen saw that she jealously looked at the princess, jealously saw that all the people of Banborough loved her so. So rising from her throne, she waved her hand and silenced the music there and then. She bid Margaret approach the throne, and then she spoke to her in a language that had not been heard for millennia. She said, You try to take the eyes from me. You want the people to love you more than I, I the queen of these lands. Princess Margaret, you will be no more. 
for I shall turn you into a worm. You will become one with scale, one with darkness, one with dark places and caverns, until your brother, who will never come from the land far, far away, returns. With that, she moved her hand, and thunder rent the sky. Lightning lit it up like it was day, and suddenly Margaret, standing before her, started to transform. From her back sprouted two huge wings, her nose grew long, and her teeth became sharp as swords. She bent over, her skin became scale, and she started to grow as she shuffled out of the great hall, with all the people screaming after her. She made her way out of the castle, and there crawled into a cave near the coast, where she turned into a worm of old. For seven miles east and seven miles west, and seven miles north and south, no blade of grass could grow, so venomous was her mouth. The milk of seven streaked cows, it was their cost to keep. They brought her daily, which she drank before she went to sleep. The little worm became a thing of horror, taking to the sky every night it would eat cow and sheep. The people would stay within their houses. Even the king and queen in Banborough dared not leave their castle. They had created a monster, one which rent the land with flame and fury and would have done so forever, had not a few years later a light landed on the south coast, for Marcus had returned. With many victories under his belt and many skills learned, it is said that he spoke with magic people from faraway lands who taught him spells and languages and many new skills. But he knew not to challenge a witch, for this story, what had happened to his sister, had reached his ears long away. So he built a ship of rowan wood and started to sail up the coast to come to Banborough in secret. But the Laidley Worm heard all, saw all, and took to the sky when it saw the boat. It flew around and around and then swooped out of the sky down towards the ship as it approached. It flew over its deck, causing the waves to almost topple and flounder it there and then. But Marcus called up to the great worm, I will do battle with you. Have courage and come and fight me here. The worm dropped from the sky like a stone and landed on the deck of the ship. The sailors all jumped back in shock, not realising what would happen. But then Marcus drew his sword, and blade upon tooth and claw upon shield, they battled on the ship's deck. But even the worm was too much for the great hero, and with a great swipe of her claw she hit him on the deck, pinning him there. The sailors gasped, as her great head bent down in order to bite off his skull. But then she whispered in his ear, in a voice as sweet as the dawn, O oh, quit thy sword and bend thy bow, and give me kisses three, for though I am a poisonous worm, no hurt I'll do to thee. When he heard his sister's voice, Marcus leant forward and kissed her three times, breaking the spell. 
the worm became Margaret once more, and there on the deck of the Rowanwood ship off the coast of Branborough, they held each other in their arms. Returning to the castle, all the king and queen's supporters melted away, gathering behind the lost prince and princess. They walked into the great hall, and the queen fell down in supplication, begging Marcus for mercy. But mercy was not in his heart that day, and uttering a spell that he had learned far away, she transformed into a creature, not a worm but a giant fetid toad. A toad that hopped from the great hall out to the caves, never to be seen again. And on the land near Ida's towers, a loathsome toad she crawls, and venom spits on everything that cometh nigh the walls, nor dwells a white in Bambrashire, but swears the story's true, that they all run to Spindleston, the rock and cave, to view. Margaret and Marcus and the king lived happily ever after. The worm no longer flew in the skies over Banborough, but up until recently the cave could still be seen, and the story is still told around fire pits at the heart of the forest at the time between times. And I have chosen, for my good friend Icy, to tell you the tale this night, a tale that will live long in the memory, the laidly worm of Spindleston Hoof. I thank you for listening. Nosta. Mm -hmm.